What's going on, everybody? I am today's host for Adventures in DevOps. I'm Will Button. I've been left here solo and abandoned by Jillian and Jonathan. They both have prior commitments. And for whatever reason, they trusted me to run the show solo. So we'll check the wisdom of that decision here by the end of this episode. But joining me today, I have not one, but two guests on the show today. And this is going to be a cool conversation. I have Leon Wright. Leon, you want to give us a little bit about your background? Yeah. Hi, I'm Leon in a, a late night time zone over here in Perth, Western Australia. Senior DevOps engineer for a company that's on the other side of Australia, Pet Circle. I work in most the uh, DevOps team and spend most of my time yeah, shouting at things in GCP. Right on. And our other guest for today, Omar. How are you? Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me. Omar, I'm based out of London, working for Zesty, which is actually in Israel. Principal engineers, spending most of my time in uh, AWS and systems around that, building the product that we deliver to our customers. Right on. Cool. So today's talk, we're going to talk about AWS and GCP and the differences and similarities between the two, because our guests today, between the both of them, have quite a bit of experience across both of those. And so it's going to be a cool chat to to just understand the differences and the similarities between the two and hopefully walk away with a little bit more info that may help you in deciding where you want to host your cloud services, or it might be enough to scare you away and say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to build my own data center. <laughs> <laughs> or rent one from Not a wise decision. If you've got enough money for the... You can. <laughs> Time and money, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, you can get a rack from AWS, but uh, I did look into it because Perth does not have a local point of presence. And uh, yeah, yeah, the too much money for the previous company I was working for. <laughs> yeah, I did that recently. We were considering looking at a bare metal server to do some like really high end load testing to see what the cost performance of the hypervisor was. And to meet the specs that we needed, the AWS bare metal server we were looking at was $18,000 a month. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, we were like, ah, you know, we're okay with that vSphere or the hypervisor yeah. performance penalty. <laughs> <laughs> So let's let's talk about AWS and GCP. One of the things we were talking about before we started recording was each of them has their own built-in deployment tool. For AWS, it's CloudFormation. And for GCP, I didn't even actually know this till we started having this conversation. They have GDP. Is that what it's called? GDM, Google Deployment GDM. Manager. Uh, yeah. I don't know how maintained it still is. Uh, I know they're still maintaining it or keeping it running. But I do know that Google themselves have included Terraform snippets in their documentation now. It's in the, you got like the console, the like CLI, and then you've got Terraform as a tab of how you can configure a thing. So that's just, that's that's an interesting sign for something. Yeah. <laughs> like early on, I'm like, oh man, should we, should we be going down the Terraform path? And I'm like, because I had to make a choice. And then I started seeing it in the documentation. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess that kind of settles it. <laughs> you know, GDM's not there, but Terraform is. <laughs> <laughs> so on the AWS side, we have CloudFormation. 
And yeah, okay. So CloudFormation is the solution by AWS. To be honest, I'm actually using Terraform for most of our high-level stuff. Our developers, by extension, use CloudFormation. By extension, that's because they're using uh, a wrapper for functions that's called serverless. Uh, so it's a framework that you kind of declare what you want to deploy using YAML files, and that's uh, creating under the hood a CloudFormation template. So it's kind of nice because we have the segregation between Terraform that manages our, let's call it DevOps infrastructure, and to whatever is going on with developers' applications and functions in the cloud. Right on. So you're using Terraform for the infrastructure and then the development, the code that the developer ship gets um, built and deployed using CloudFormation? Yes. I, I mean, part of the infrastructure actually is being deployed with CloudFormation, but it's uh, right around the application, like the application themselves, the uh, API gateways, whatever else that's hooked to the application and isn't like high-level infrastructure. Gotcha. Are they using something like um, AWS SAM for that? Uh, no. So SAM is, is AWS's framework. We use serverless.com. That's the framework we oh, okay. uh, chose to work gotcha. with. So it's a little bit different. Yeah. Gotcha. And so you guys are using serverless, obviously, as hinted by serverless.com. Yes. I'm quick. You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of early here in this morning for me, but... Um, <laughs> Just give me a few minutes for the coffee to kick in and I'll, I'll catch up to speed. <laughs> right. I had to make so, a point, so do I have coffee and not sleep and be alert or do I not have coffee and just be a little bit quiet? <laughs> right. <laughs> do you take the penalty now or in two hours when you're really wishing you were asleep? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> for sure. So in the Google world, what is the deployment framework for deploying serverless functions over there? Uh, you've got a few choices. Uh, you, a lot of the examples will have cloud build. We, but they're, it's very tied to Google Source. I think you can use it via GitHub Actions. I haven't, haven't really looked into that side of it. So we're using pretty much Terraform all the way down via, uh, via the CDK. Gotcha. Or the, the Terraform CDK, that is. Okay. Right on. And are y'all doing serverless functions as well? We're, I mean, uh, it's, the platform itself was a sort of a lift and shift through sort of like on-prem to hosted to GCP. So there's still a lot of, um, you know, VMs, but we're growing out in, you know, cloud functions and cloud run and all of those other sort of serverless technologies as, as the platform sort of grows and matures and developers sort of get used to that sort of cloud first sort of way of doing things. Are you running containers at all in between? Sorry to barge in. <laughs> Oh, no, not a, the cloud run is at containers. The cloud functions are kind of containers underneath you. You can even, uh, the way, I mean, GCP is kind of Kubernetes from the bottom up. Like you, even our VMs underneath, I'm pretty sure that a Borg is essentially mm -hmm. contain, uh, Kubernetes. So like uh, the VM boot up time compared to AWS is like seconds. Like, right. You turn on okay. a, a VM. So the, like the driver to containers is less so in mm -hmm. GCP, I found when I made the switch. There's still benefits to running containers. And I wish we were doing more of it. And that is kind of one of my personal goals is to have more containers. But, you know, that, that the, the journey for DevOps with the software engineers and developers is sort of like, just take them on the journey rather than just like, oh, here's a container, get on with life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point to me, especially since you men mentioned y'all did the lift and shift from on-prem to VMs to now trying to do 
functions and, and a serverless type model, there's really like the way that you write code for those is very different. I've always felt like, you know, you have to consider how your application is going to be run in production. And that is going to influence some decisions that you make when you're actually writing the code. What's been the transition for educating and collaborating with the development team to to work with that model? There's been like, it's sort of, I guess, kind of picking your battles, right? Yeah. You'll get brought a, a problem or a, a questions about how do we deploy this? And we're like, well, do you want to do it that way? Have you thought about doing it this way? And then sort of like really putting that, uh, sometimes having some quite robust discussions around that and not always like winning those discussions, but sometimes the, the challenge has been met, taken up and then really run with. So, so some of our biggest successes in the last year have come from the, oh, we want to do a set of VMs and going, well, have you thought about doing it by some a bunch of cloud functions and some PubSub? Because this seems like a very event-driven right for that kind of really light integration between the external party. And launch day for that was absolutely like flawless. I, I went to, it was uh, for a doing our um, integration with our own fleet for doing deliveries. And I was there for in the warehouse for release day, just hanging out with um, a few, few of the team. And it was pretty quiet, you know, and I've been doing this sort of stuff, like sort of greenfields deployment stuff for years and years. And day one is never that quiet. <laughs> right? Were you a bit nervous? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm i just a DevOps guy. I, I just sit in the background and watch people do do the work. Like, we cool for that, right? <laughs> like, my job was done. The code was already deployed. <laughs> I was a little bit nervous because it was a new pattern, but no, the uh, the software engineers that did a really amazing job, they, they get the, the credit of taking that up and running with it. I just sort of built the tools to sort of make that relatively easy to deploy, if you will. Right on. I think that's one of the vanity metrics of DevOps is just watching developers do their thing seamlessly and quickly day after day because of the the tools that you've given them. How many like engineers like uh, where you're working, Omar? We have a team of, I think, 70 engineers. But to be honest, while you were talking, I was thinking about serverless. So it has its pros and cons. One of the benefits is you as a DevOps engineer don't really have to do anything. As long as you're monitoring that everything's fine and they don't mess with the configuration or anything funky is going on, they just build it on their own. And it's super easy to just create your own YAML deployment, run serverless deploy or whatever other framework you're running and everything just magically happens. And there's nothing much to handle. So it's been built for you and you can focus your time and energy on building infrastructure managing, I don't know, secrets management and all other components. That's pretty nice. That said, <laughs> serverless can be a problem at times. Like Will just said, you need to know your environment. You need to know where you're running. You need to know the limits. Serverless is nice, but it's not a container or, or a VM. It has a limited runtime. You're paying per second. It has other limitations, obviously. CPU, memory, deployment times, hot and cold starts. All kinds of other metrics that you you need to start monitoring and understanding when you move there. So pros and cons. I, I don't think is a one tool fits all. You need to manage your like spread your workload between things that can run and need to run on functions and other things probably better run on VMs or containers. Uh, so we're we're kind of the the opposite way, right? We started 
uh, serverless only and are trying to kind of slowly offload whatever needs offloading onto containers. So what are the key metrics that you're or key indicators you're looking for that's telling you this probably shouldn't be a serverless function? The easiest one is uh, functions that are hitting the capacity of runtime, which is 15 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, today on AWS Lambda. But long before that, I think Lambdas that are running for long seconds, let's call it. If a Lambda is running more than 30 seconds, I think it's it's a problem because it means that it's doing something it shouldn't. And I did find functions just uh, polling queues and waiting for responses from HTTP requests and things like that. But not really the place to do that. And that's a problem of, like you mentioned before, education. Developers are just running their code, expecting it'll work as it should anywhere else, uh, but don't really understand the caveats of the system it's running on. So if you're polling a queue, rather than being triggered by a queue message, uh, it means that you don't fully understand the path. And, and and it needs a lot of education and monitoring. So it's hard to say what metrics, but I can say runtime is the first. The next one is a bit harder to understand and debug, but it's hot and cold starts. So a function is always starting from somewhere. And like Leon just mentioned, it's at the end of the day, it's a container. And a container takes a few milliseconds to seconds to start, and it'll be kept there alive. So it, it differs between cloud providers. I think on Amazon, it's something somewhere around 30 seconds that the container is kept alive for the ne- like the subsequent run. And if you're not running, fine, the container uh, dies and then a new one starts. But that's a cold start because it takes time to provision the infra. Whereas if you have a lot of incoming requests, one after the other, you can utilize the already created container, maybe use the cache inside it and have a lot of uh, faster startup time. So if a function's running only in cold starts, mm, probably something's not going all that well over there. Maybe it should be a job, maybe it should be a a standalone task, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think within GCP, I'm not, can't recall across cloud functions, but cloud runs is an option for us to keep them warm. I think even the cloud functions, we can keep them warm. AWS has that option if I remember. So you have two options. The paid one, you can uh, keep it provisioned. I think it's called provision capacity for Lambdas. Yeah. But then you're paying for them to to actually keep the containers alive. So you're paying for the time. Uh, the benefit is the performance. The other way are Lambda wormers, I think they're called, or function wormers, which yeah, are just... Yeah, it was a, like a little primer that just get, went and ticked. You just ping your application yeah. and keep but poking at it so it's kept I, alive. I have had to do that in the past before <laughs> Before the, the option was to do that. I mean, a lot of the places where I've worked, the the performance f- uh, far outweighed the sort of cost where, where e-commerce, so customer responsiveness when they're hitting the site is kind of really important. I find Wormers the funniest solution ever. <laughs> just poking at the Lambda in order to keep it alive. Yeah. A friend of mine just wrote a function that is called Insomnia for that reason. <laughs> that is fantastic. I love it. <laughs> it reminds me, the, the Wormers reminds me of a long time ago, there used to be this, this little desktop thing that was like a bird that had the liquid filled in it and it would just tip back and forth. There was, it was actually in a Simpsons episode where he put yeah, it over yeah. his keyboard. So yeah. it hit the enter key every so often. <laughs> <laughs> vent gas or vent nuclear gas or something it was. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> cool. So whenever it comes to launching a new project, how does this information come to you guys being in a DevOps team? Do you get integrated with the software teams early on, or do you find out about this project as it's getting ready to go live? Uh, it kind of depends. Like it's changed a lot over my time. Uh, we've got a a 
architect team now. So a lot of us, uh, we work closely with the architects and uh, we're small enough. Uh, it's not quite 70. I think we're, we're around 50 software engineers. It's small enough that we know most people and most people are kind of interested in how to utilize like the, the, the tooling is now the new shiny and it's sort of proven. So people are coming to us going, how do we do this? And we're like, yeah, maybe go talk to the architects. They're going to have some ideas about it. Or we are doing a lot of brownfield shifting over. So it's just the grunt work of getting off the sort of more manual processes that things were and sort of moving them across because what you could get away with setting up by hand, you can't always get away with. <laughs> when you you put it onto IAC, and that's kind of one of the big, been one of the biggest challenges, whittling away those corner cases and the things that have been done in a way that kind of were okay on a static instance that just don't fit when it gets auto healed or auto scaled or you do a rollover and uh, all the data goes away. Mike, can share the zesty side that we're probably on the same scale. And I wanted to say that, Leon, it's good for you to have an architect's team because uh, on our end, we're the architects. We're deploying the infrastructure and we're the architects. And so, uh, yes, we're, we're kind of involved pretty early on in the process, but we need to take a look at everything. And I find myself going through the infra, but then going uh, through the code to understand that it's utilizing either the container or the function as it should. Again, the good thing, the easy thing, with at least in the function side of things, the IAC kind of creates itself. So all you have to do is like just make sure that everything's in place and again, nothing funky is going on, like no security or for some reason, for some reason too many open stuff that shouldn't be there. But it kind of creates itself. But uh, we do have a nice utility we just added to Terraform that's called Atlantis. Don't know if you've heard that. Kind of a nice integration that helps you. It manages basically merge requests into your code base. So when a developer needs a new feature or a component in your infrastructure, you can now tell them, uh, dude, read the docs, uh, build the feature, open a pull request, and we'll manage it. And then Atlantis will create a plan and we'll try to run it with a dry run. Okay. Yeah, and maybe fail it in the process and, and kind of let you create your own discussion between you and the DevOps or the developers and the ops engineers on what's going on. And then you iterate until it's fixed and you and it gets to the level that you want it. And then once you approve, it's integrated into the code base and deployed automatically through CI. So that's I a nice thing we added. Either Cloudflare or Slack use something similar. I read something one of the what they did a talk uh wrote up a couple of articles recently i can't remember which one i read it in but i i have heard one of those companies is using something like that might have been cloudflare yeah that sounds pretty cool yeah so you're using straight terraform uh, like hcl yes mm -hmm. uh, like as opposed to using the cdk yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty new isn't it, it hasn't uh, been uh maybe 18 months two years yeah Maybe yeah. a bit longer, maybe three years. I know I've uh, been using it for about 18 months now. Okay. Uh, so, and it was in very much alpha, beta when I started using it. Okay, you're, you're an early adopter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I remember starting looking at it and it looked pretty cool. And I tend to trust HashiCorp with everything they do. It hasn't <laughs> failed me yet. <laughs> so we definitely want to go there, but we're still writing HCL templates, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's been an interesting journey. Like it uses JSII or JSI or JSSI. Okay. It's the integration. It's the the layer that takes TypeScript to native bindings. So it, you can use it in Python, C sharp, 
JavaScript, a whole bunch of different libraries via native bindings. And mm-hmm. they say native bindings, but it's very using it, it feels like you're writing TypeScript in Python. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. So because it was such a moving target, I kind of, the way I've architected our tooling is that we don't actually use CDK until we need the template, right? So mm-hmm. we build all our objects in Python and we've got some sort of common classes that underpin resources and stacks. And when we go synth stack, it pulls all the lo- uh, objects in, it instantiates them as formal CDK classes and then throws them out uh, to generate the template. I have to, act to actually make it easier for developers to integrate themselves into the process or contribute code. Yeah, so it keeps it sort of very Pythonic, if you will, but it's mostly the DevOps team and a couple of the developers because we're mostly Java in-house. So okay. uh, they're coming along to see this this Python, they're like, this is all a bit foreign and we're using a bit dynamic abstract, to my taste. abstract-based classes <laughs> yeah. and mix-ins and this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. They're like, what on <laughs> earth is going on here? <laughs> uh- I'm wondering, though, since you are actually using a, a programming language rather than HCL, which is more of a declarative script, whether you can actually use a language server in your IDE and then just kind of like you are normally get all the methods and classes from a certain object, maybe that helps you write the code, get suggestions, might be uh, interesting. Maybe. I, I haven't thought about it too much. So sort of like it's there's a lot of work to do. There's, there's just yeah, yeah. so much work to do when when you don't. Like my former role was basically, it was a startup. There wasn't too much tech debt. Infrastructure as code sort of came about as a natural sort of process. As as the as we grew, it became a necessity because it was just myself and my boss at the time that were working on the, the team to support, you know, hundreds of customers in a, you know, small, and it was very consulting. It was very, it was a lot of work for two of us to be managing you know, hundreds of PBXs, call routing, network, this, that, and the other thing, and deploying that all and management platforms and ERP that in-house, <laughs> it was a lot. So you just had to do it with DevOps. Yeah, yeah. To come here where, you know, we, we're building all the tooling, we're kind of putting the rails down while the trains are still running, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just pick the next annoying problem that you need to get out of the way next and work on that. <laughs> Have either of you used Pulumi? I did a little bit in the past, not much. Yeah, I know it exists, and I, on my article that I wrote, that was like I, I suggested at least thirty times. Have you checked out Pulumi? I'm like, yeah, Pulumi. I've used Troposphere in the past, which is like Python CDK, but only yeah. Python. And I couldn't see the big benefit over using just a native template, so I ditched that. But yeah, I well, I came from Troposphere, so you know, I, I must profess that, or well, confess that, when I went into infrastructure as code, I didn't see CloudFormation or any of those tools as code, which is a bit judgy of what what is code or is not code. But I kind of taken it literally, and for me, code was a programming language like Python or Perl or JavaScript, yeah. something like yeah. that. And I was like, oh, you know, once we get past this YAML stuff, we'll, we'll, get, we'll actually do infrastructure as code. And my boss found Troposphere. I'm like, oh, code, fine. Yeah, code. 
<laughs> and then I came to this job and like there was actual definitions for infrastructure as code. And because uh, there was no troposphere for Google or, or Google Deployment Manager, I was like, what the heck? And then I found out, you know, infrastructure as code, the way I saw it was actually called a cloud development kit. And I was just like completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a, a exciting and challenging way to start a new DevOps job where you're the one that's sort of like okay now I'm going to build all this stuff and I didn't know what it's called. <laughs> <You're right>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. I hadn't used any GCP before, and I hadn't used Terraform much before. It was uh, <laughs> the way I jump into a lot of things. It's like jumping at the deep end, sink or swim, or just flounder. Mostly that, that's the job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what I like. That's what I like about it, basically. Yeah, absolutely. That really is the job is you just, there's a saying like, we the unwilling led by the unknowing doing the impossible or something like that. <laughs> and that's kind of DevOps in a nutshell. Yeah, that, should, that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> I'm surprised I don't have it on a t-shirt somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll find the exact quote and send it to you. We can, we can have t-shirts made. <laughs> All right. Excellent. So yeah, Leon, you said something a few minutes ago that I want to highlight because I think it's really, really, it's like one of those hidden nuggets. You you know, we talked about how you integrate with the development team and when you get involved. And you said, after we had a few successes, they started coming to look, they started coming to us to work with us. And I think that's huge, you know, because a lot of times when you're trying to do something like implement DevOps or change the DevOps strategy, you have to get everyone on board. And there's a couple of ways to do it. But the one that you mentioned that I accidentally did at one point was you just deliver this thing that actually works for the developers. And they're like, oh, wow, this is this is great. This makes it so much easier for us. And then all of a sudden, they just come, they come to find you and say, hey, we're going to do this. Will this work with that thing that you built versus the alternative where you're trying to roll this thing out and you're having to continuously go out and see what they're doing and change their course of action because they're on another path? Yeah. I mean, the first, first year of the, the job, it was, uh, I thought, you know, I, I thought it was a case of build it and they will come and I built it and they didn't come. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was like I had to change sort of tax, uh, this year and. I realized uh, that DevOps is a lot more about bringing people on a journey because, you know, I was encountering people where, you know, I've done this stuff. I've done it for years and I've, especially uh, Pet Circles had an explosion of growth through the pandemic. You know, everyone went out and got a dog or a cat or a pet of some description. And they, they couldn't go to the shops and buy their food. So where did they go? Us. And that's, that's taken the platform to the point where it's big and it's important that it stays reliable because people depend on it. And growth is a really good way of highlighting what tech debt you have. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so there's a, and when things process as manual, things aren't as consistent and it increases risk. So, you know, deployments comes with risk and risk is fear. So there's a lot of, you know, very well, I can't think of the right word, but, you know, the fear was real and understandable because gone from smaller to large and it's really important. And I can't just lift out my experience out of my head and give it to the software engineers and say, hey, yeah, are we fine? I seem overly relaxed about what I'm doing here because, 
I've done it for years. I've seen it work and I trust the process. I get like DevOps is a process. You just trust it. But it's really hard to trust if you haven't been living that life. And, and translating that experience when has been the thing I've been focusing on this year. And that's kind of work to, you know, pick your champions and even pick your critics. Like there's, there have been people that were probably my biggest challenges that have turned around and gone, Hey, no, this is awesome. Once they sort of understood what it could do and they've been become the biggest allies from being the, the person I'd be like, to the person are like, yes, cool, you're going to be doing that. Yeah, I totally understand that. Definitely, when the developer can just click the button and see no problems whatsoever, and his code just magically gets to production, it just becomes an amazing process, and then there's no other way. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest challenge I've had to uh, in communicating this is going from code being separate to infrastructure to if you're working in the cloud and your infrastructure is not intrinsically something you think about in your code, are you really leaning on the cloud that hard? So it's getting that that mindset shift of going, no, my code isn't just code. My code is, it's pub sub, it's a cloud function, it's a VM, it's a memory store, it's, it's all these components, but they all belong with this project. And you know, one of my uh, like tooling should be opinionated. I'm opinionated. And one of my strong opinions is config and code live together. Cause it's like, unless you're selling a product, right? It's, that's a little bit different. But if you're deploying an internal service, your code and your infrastructure are, intri- are intrinsically linked. So they should live together. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to hear your thoughts on that. I'm <laughs> 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 throwing out a, a random strong opinion. <laughs> when you say uh, code part of the application as in code is uh, sorry code and the environment are are intrinsically one part of the other do you mean how do you mean by that so instead of having a configuration repo for your service or services mm-hmm. your configuration living with the application in the same repo so one of the one of the things we've done here is uh, with the cdk it sort of allowed us to have a very light shim config so mm-hmm. every single repo has the same, like you've got your GitHub, .github folder for your workflows and whatnot. And we've got our own tooling directory that has our a small config file. And it is YAML, yes. <laughs> but a say a VM is the, I think the minimum number of lines for a VM config is like seven lines or maybe less now. But it's like a very small deck relation of the service name, and maybe some environment variables and secrets and whatnot, all in this little parcel. And that gets passed to the tooling. And then the tooling explodes it out to like a three or four, 500. Actually, it's a, a nine or maybe about a thousand lines of HCL when it gets passed off to Terraform down the track. Yeah. So I totally get that. We get that with functions that have their own serverless YAML and obviously with the Kubernetes pods that can describe their own YAMLs as part of their own code. However, I'm, I'm separating config between infrastructure configuration, which would be the the templates and the actual configurations. You mentioned secrets and parameters, which I do agree that shouldn't reside in their own config repo. And we do still do that because uh, the team grew so fast that uh, we're, we're still running processes as if it's uh, four people in a garage. And that's Hard, that's the hard part of DevOps in, in terms of education. We have to explain why it's a bad idea to keep everything in one place. And, and you don't have to explain too hard because 
suddenly you can start seeing secrets just uh, pushed into this Git repo and distributed among the applications wherever they go, staging, production, every application. And, and that's that's what you mentioned is a goal of ours, and it's part of the hard process that we're going through with educating developers. Yeah, it, it is a... I think a, a challenge and something I noted in the sort of the, the examples or the go-to ways of doing Terraform. So it, it kind of lent itself to that sort of separate repo. Yeah, it brings me back with follow HashiCorp and you'll be fine. At least that's how I think. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of HashiCorp and secrets, are you, is that where, are you using Vault or do you use the like... AWS Secrets Manager? So we use all kinds of things. Uh, started from the Secrets Manager. I think it's a little bit expensive if you consider what it does. Then you have the option in AWS to use the parameter store and use like your own key or KMS key to encrypt the parameters. Yeah, the, the parameter store was like, I looked at Secret Manager when it came out on AWS. I'm like, oh, Secret Manager. What, 50 cents a month per secret? Right. <laughs> Why? Like, well, I mean, it's, and then you, then you look at the parameter store and it's like, if you only, if you're doing less than 10,000 accesses per day, or I can't remember specifically, but like, it's it's essentially free. Yeah, it's the same. You you provide two services that provide the same value, one for free. And <laughs> of course, why would I, I mean, use the, that? The key rotation part of Secret Manager kind of looks cool, but right. you know, if you've got a thousand secrets, that's a non-trivial amount of money in in secrets. <laughs> and that's why we find ourselves in Vault. Exactly for that. And then Vault manages everything for you. Key rotation, temporary access, everything. Yeah, we've mostly lent on uh, GCP Secret Manager, which is um, pretty cheap, I think. Uh, it's so cheap that I don't know what the costs are, but they, they don't show up on the bill. All right, it, that's good for like, you. They're not, in the, <laughs> they're not in the, 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 the category of things I need to care about on the bill. So. <laughs> nice. nice. When it comes to delivering those secrets, do you push them into the runtime through environment variables or you allow the application to connect to the secret? secret store and pull them in when the application starts or something else? On our side, that's kind of a debate because uh, most of our workload, like I mentioned, is with functions and functions are being built by the second. And if with every one, with every run, you'll start talking to your secrets manager, decrypting whatever keys you need, then pulling them, setting them up, whatever else you're doing in order to use them, that's that has a cost. What you can do in Lambda is add a layer and then that, la that layer is kind of an, an init service and it's run, it runs as part of the provisioning process. And then the secrets are already there when the, when the function starts running. But more importantly, the next runs, the hot runs, uh, the hot starts. So the subsequent runs will have that as part of the cache. And then it's seamless, completely seamless for them. Yeah, GCP gives a few options, uh, especially in cloud functions and cloud running. You can either use environment variables or mount them as a, a directory within the process. We've mostly opted for making it fairly seamless for the developers. So I think at, at some point, maybe baking it into the application may sen make, make sense. But you know, getting them into Secret Manager and having them centrally controlled was is more of a priority and making it seamless so that when the applications come across... It's just easy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because with GCP being influenced heavily by Kubernetes, one of the common Kubernetes paths for that is to just mount your secrets as a read-only volume, right? Yeah. 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 Which is strange in uh, their Kubernetes deployment. It's not very seamless to bring stuff in from Secrets Manager. 
<laughs> uh, like they, I do, I do think they provide a like a a service within the Kubernetes, uh, within Kubernetes that you can configure that is acts as a bridge. But it's not it's it's not like using a cloud run or cloud functions. We just define it and it's there, <laughs> right? Right. That's, that's not Google like, I think, is it? It's well, it's a bit weird. Their their hope their managed Kubernetes kind of feels separate. If you know what I mean, it's it just feel well. It feels mm-hmm. like straight Kubernetes, right? Whereas everything else kind of feels like it was built on top of Kubernetes, but you don't need to think <laughs> okay. about it. And, and yeah. like that's where I'm like the argument for Kubernetes in GCP is not quite as strong because a lot of the caveats you face on uh, the other vendors and pro- uh, cloud providers of use, you just don't sort of face in Google. Like VMs start up fast. Uh, cloud functions and cloud run are so close to being containers and Kubernetes that they're really nice management pieces that you get. Just make it so easy that you've really, because running stuff in Kubernetes, you've got to think about how it's going to run at, to take advantage of Kubernetes. Whereas on AWS, like the caveats of running as VMs and stuff like that drove you to something like Kubernetes because yeah, it, it feels more of a managed service, I guess, on AWS. We did recently get the solution for the secrets, so you can now manage sealed secrets using KMS to encrypt them, which is pretty nice. The thing is with EKS that it's pretty it's pretty slow to adapt new versions, whereas I think with Google you, you get them like yeah, or a couple and, of weeks later. Yeah, it's it's quick. It's slick. They've got autopilot, which even spins up the infrastructure behind it automatically. So. I, it's pretty nice, and uh, and there's a lot, probably a lot of things I don't know about it yet because it hasn't been my focus. I've done a few deep dives into it, and but that's my knowledge. There's there's probably a lot of things I I don't know about it, but the rest of the stuff works so seamless and so quick that the driver just isn't there. Right on. So, what do you guys think the the next stage of DevOps looks like for each of you? As in, for me as a role, or for us as an industry? Yeah, from like an industry perspective, like what's the the direction that we're going, the next big thing that we're going to go, oh, dang. Hopefully automation. I'm a big believer in, uh, in, in automation around the infrastructure. And, and I mean, infrastructure as code is one part of it. I think serverless is, I can't say it's the next big leap and everything is going there because at the end of the day, like we said more than once here, it's just containers, which I think will keep being just containers, but slowly offloading, actually managing servers and offloading that to the cloud provider, I think is the next thing. And that's at least what I'm trying to do. So you don't really, you get to manage containers and applications, but the servers are slowly transitioning in their responsibility to the cloud provider. And even when you do need to, because I mean, sometimes you do need access to your servers and you do need to manage some lower level stuff. So the entire thing around auto-scaling them, provisioning them, creating creating and, and, and destroying them, everything becomes a little bit more automated. And I think that's kind of the near future, like not having to manage nodes of anything and just caring about your application and everything around that. I think that's improved, that improves the process of building an application and creating it because you're like laser focused on that rather than needing to manage nodes and, and uh, storage and everything around using a server as if it was in your basement. Right. Yeah. I think the uh, I think the rise of the cloud development kit has been really interesting. And something I've been doing for maybe four or five years now, because I was doing it with Troposphere before the, the term sort of come about. But since AWS had their CDK, 
there was Troposphere and then HashiCorp come come along for the CDK for Terraform. It, it's sort of showing that there's an appetite to do uh, more than just a declarative approach to um, our infrastructure as code, right? So having that go GA, having there's a, there seems to be a lot of energy behind it. I, I think the world where we've got thousands of lines of YAML uh, has kind of made us all a bit tired. <laughs> I don't know whether think- you've been on the back end of trying to debug like a massive cloud formation <laughs> stack and it's got into some weird state. And like there were, there were times that I just went home because I'm like, well, I don't know I've screwed up. But <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't fix it today and I'm tired. I'm going home. <laughs> Coming to think of it, now that you mention it, I think CDK is the perfect description of DevOps because at the end of the day, it shouldn't be a job title. It should be this culture of, of using developers and operations. And when you're like CDK, that's what it is. It's basically taking a programming language where developers can manage their infrastructure. Yeah, that's my, a nice analogy. My, my former boss wrote a, an article recently. I have to look it up at some point. But it was basically that, that there should be no DevOps engineers. Right? Yeah, like... I wrote something like that more than once. Yeah. The heat I got back. <laughs> there is no such thing as a DevOps engineer. Yeah, yeah. That's what that was my exact title, by the way. <laughs> uh, it didn't go well. Tell, I'll have to tell Davin uh, that uh, someone someone had tried to cross that. <laughs> I'll find first. it for you. I'll share the link. It's two years <laughs> back. But yeah. Okay, yeah. Well he only wrote this about a month ago. Um, okay. It's funny though, how many of us who have the title of DevOps engineers are all advocates that this should not be a job. It's like we're all clamoring to get ourselves fired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so I was a, a technician at a school and then I was a technician at a mining company and then I moved in sysadmin and then I got a software development role and what i'm doing hasn't really it's just a more mature version of what i was doing as a sysadmin like the 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 tooling that is available now compared to you know a decade ago when i was a a sysadmin is just so leaps and bounds better and a lot of that has come with the cloud but I mean, early in my career, I was using uh, Zenworks desktop management because I was I, I was doing <laughs> deployment <laughs> management for Windows desktops. Yeah, <laughs> so that was the kind of kind of the same sort of process to what I'm doing now. It's just now I'm thinking about instead of you know installing Outlook, I'm installing uh, sporting up fifty con- um, cloud functions. <laughs> I know which one's easier, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, week, a decade ago, you were literally the CI server. You're taking yeah. each step hand by hand, doing it manually. And well, today you have systems well, doing it for you. Well, we had systems. I guess I was building the packages by hand, but we had systems that would, like, you'd log into your workstation after it got imaged and it would spin up all your applications on demand. So it was kind of the same thing. A, a lot of the things I, and processes I use now haven't really changed change that much it's just the tools and the maturity of the tools have really changed significant significant and their stability like, i think yeah, yeah yeah stability and, and like git having really good <laughs> open source <laughs> yeah distributed version control <laughs> i actually had this conversation with someone the other day that was asking about you know is devops a, a sustainable career and that was a almost verbatim what i told them I said look i've been doing this for 30 almost 30 years now 
and I'm solving the exact same problems I was solving 30 years ago. I'm just using different tools. So will the time stick around? Who knows? When serverless started and we started working with it, the the notion or the title was uh, it's a no ops framework. Right, no more demos. <laughs> you have serverless. That's it. It's all fine. And then I came in the company and said, "Okay, what, what am I doing here? Then, I mean, nothing to do, right? Everything serverless. So you're basically solving the same things with different frameworks and different technologies. Uh, it's hard to get rid of. I'll be the first one jumping on the train, uh, the automation train that takes away ninety percent of my job. Still hasn't happened. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my entire career has like before I was diagnosed with ADHD, like. Automation was a coping strategy because I find it hard to do the same thing twice. And I find it really hard to do the same thing twice consistently. Like, (laughs) I'll do the same thing 50 times. I guarantee I've probably done it differently 55 times. (laughs) Somehow I did it an extra five times and I don't know how. (laughs) But it was a coping strategy before, but now it's automation is not even a goal, I don't think. It's it's a side effect of really good process. Like all the stuff I built first, I did by hand. I was running by hand. And then I got it to the point where it was so boring to run by hand. Well, I'm like, well, it now can go into a GitHub action. And now it's in the last year, it's run over 9,000 times across all of the different projects. Right on. Well, we're coming up on an hour here. Is there anything else we need to cover? Anything else you'd like to discuss? I mean, I have a habit of being able to talk until I've got no voice left. (laughs) Get me on a roll and you just can't shut me up. (laughs) Just find the right button to push. (laughs) Find something that annoys me. That's that's a guarantee, right? Right. I I find most most of what I I do is, and like DevOps is solving the, the, the problems that are taking up all your time. You just keep iterating forwards. And I, I call it annoyance-driven development or AD. Yes. <laughs> okay, that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a TED talk. <laughs> I mean, I do it in, in my house. Like I, I've got a build system for my home automation firmware for all my IoT devices which I put in place because like I forget to turn things off and they either break or they use a lot of power. So they're all automated, but I also don't want to yell at things and say, okay, Google. (laughs) Apologies for all the things that just got turned on just then. But so mine's all like offline and uses various offline automation stuff like open hab or home assistant. So my, my house just reacts to my presence, but a lot of the process is there because I'm not going to do them if they're hard. They're all sort of like GitHub actions and <laughs> workflows. and. <laughs> yeah, on the other hand, I find that I just talked about it with a colleague the other day that sometimes you're too lazy to automate a process because it seems something you're either not going to repeat enough or maybe this uh, automation is going to take an hour or two and you're just too lazy and you keep repeating yourself for days and weeks and months. And if you just invest this one hour or two as a method of work, it is so, so much pain in the life later on. So that's what I'm trying to teach myself. It's, it's not hard to implement, at least not for me. I'm, I'm, I tend to be too lazy with too many stuff. We can, which at some point you say maybe laziness is why you do automation. But on the other hand, you need to make yourself start. You need to force yourself into action. And that's not always easy. 
Yeah, what, one of my previous bosses was uh, laziness is a sign of a good sysadmin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that, and and I agree definitely. As long as long <laughs> as you um you ship it in a good way, you you turn it into automation rather than just not doing something. It depends for me. Yeah, well, I, the fear of disappointing people is a, a big big one for me. Like people depend on me to get stuff done, mm-hmm. and I don't remember to do stuff. <laughs> so like <laughs> automation, <laughs> just like if the machines are doing it. They can't forget. <laughs> I think uh, one bad sign is when you start having cron jobs on your local machine doing things for you. That's uh, that's a bad signal. I <laughs> uh, see. I I don't have them on my local machine. It's all baked into my home automation. Me, me neither. But once when I did, that was like a red light. There's something wrong. <laughs> oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, you're cron into. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, uh, I've 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 tried to uh, obliterate the world of Cron. I love Cron; mm-hmm. it's a great tool, but for certain uh, things, yeah, yeah, it has like batch processes are, are interesting and they have their place, but are too often overused. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd yeah. like when, when something becomes more... too easy to automate and to retrigger based on like a time-based series. Yeah, event-driven, like things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's key. Identifying the right reason to respond. It often should be in response to something happening versus it, the clock being a particular time. That is one of the key concepts when building an architecture that's or not serverless functions based. You want mm-hmm. to be triggered by events rather than doing something or, or repetitive, time, like based on time or, or just waiting for something to happen. You want something to trigger the fact that the function was created. For sure. All right. Well, let's move on to some picks. Yeah. Do you have something to pick, Homer? So I have a problem because I have too many of them (laughs) to the point to the point where I figured I have so much uh, links and articles and and find nice stuff. I things I find on GitHub that I created my own Telegram channel. (laughs) I can send you the link (laughs) later. And I try not to spam because I really I have like three or four a day. So I just try to pick two and and send them like biweekly. So people stay there and don't run away. I can share a recent one. I found a CNCF project. Maybe it's common knowledge. It wasn't. I wasn't familiar with it. It's called BuildPacks. Have you ever heard of them? So BuildPacks is kind of a way to build container images without yeah, actually providing a Docker file. So when I saw that, that was mind blowing. So they just read your code, and if you have a package JSON or a pip file or whatever else, they identify the environment you're running on. They will analyze it provision their own container template and build the container and it comes out production grade, like ready to go. That was mind blowing. And I've seen it the other day and I figured, I found out that GitLab for their GitLab DevOps and I think GitHub are also using it as part of the automation because they won't guess and sometimes you won't be the one providing a Docker file. So they have to do something and that's what they use. So that was pretty amazing. Interesting. Have you have you had a play with it yet? I know one of my colleagues has had a play with it. I, I did locally only. I find that the images are. I mean, again, it, it's automated and it analyzes based on certain rules. It's not as good as if you will build your own Docker file. You'll probably get a linear image, probably more precise. But for someone who either doesn't know how to write a Docker file or needs an automation system that provisions different kinds of them, it's pretty good. Not bad. Yeah. Because, like, uh, I mean, I've been using Docker quite a while now, and the last workplace I worked in was the entire environment where 
was container based. So I've broken it in some interesting ways over the for, years. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> That should be another episode for us. All the ways that I've broken things. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, that's a that series, not an episode. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> All the hacks I've done to keep production up. <laughs> you know what they say is better than a cup of coffee in the morning? Deleting a production database table. <laughs> <laughs> I, so far, touch all of the wood in my office. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> But uh, I got you covered. I, <laughs> I, I did have a colleague reach out to me a little while ago because they were looking to ship like 10 years ago. I wrote a sort of a QA HSC app on top of Jira. Like I hacked Jira, the interface to look like it because, you know, it was a quality tracking system. And I, I took one look at the custom one that was written and didn't work. And went, this is just a ticketing system. And then after a year of not being able to make that other thing work, I'm like, can you just give me two months to rewrite it in like on top of Jira? And my boss said, okay. And I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like a year ago, so that was like, yeah, nine years ago when I did the first iteration and I've not been at that company for six years. I get a message saying, oh yeah, the uh, IT guys are doing some updates to it before we move on. They found your hack and they said, <laughs> it was very clever because I wrote on the hack on the piece of code, this is a hack, but it works. And they're like, it's neat and clever and they appreciate it. And I'm like, I don't even remember what it was. I did ev eventually remember because Jira, we needed to be able to keep the issue types active, but we didn't want people to be able to select them. So I, I put a, some jQuery in the footer that just removed them from the list. <laughs> 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 the world needs you. I mean, Jira is the most over-glorified ticketing system I've ever seen. And had the pleasure to wear. <laughs> Was that quotes. pleasure in air quotes? <laughs> yeah, definitely air quotes. Cool. Uh, All right, Leon, what have you got for If you have pick? time, one more visit, ihajira.com. That's a real thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell my friends that work at Atlassian. <laughs> <laughs> um my pick so it was it's the iot firmware that i use on all my devices tasmoda they've just added ipv6 integration uh like to the project so um i've got my laptop sitting beside me to add ipv6 to my uh iot vlan and start bringing up most uh, my devices on uh, IPv6. So I'm kind of excited by that. Right on. Nice. So this week, I'm going to pick a book called The Metaverse by Matthew Ball. And, you know, like the metaverse is like one of those buzzwords for the year can mean anything. But the reason I picked this book is because I think the author did a really good job of saying, look, it's just another buzzword. But then they break down some historical context that's probably missing for a lot of people just getting started in the tech industry. And so they use some really great stories about how things went from mainframes to desktops to server side and how all these iterations led to the current state of what we have and, and provide some historical context and uses that to kind of like reframe the metaverse for what it really is, which is just another client server application. And so it's, it's really, really well written. And uh, I think it's it provides some good, much needed context around that whole. Buzzword. I have to say that uh, if he's wrong, is one of the biggest money pitfalls in the history of the universe. So uh, 
I hope he's right. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on the show today. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, likewise. It's, me too. Thank you guys. Time. It was nice meeting you. Yeah, right on. And thanks for listening, everyone. And we will see y'all next week. Thank you. Catch us. <laughs>